Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to The Midpoint. Today, I have a guest who's seen me in some tricky situations. He's been in the unique position of watching me squirm in an ice bath while he stands toasty and warm on the sidelines making jokes. Yes, it could only be Lee Mack. Lee's one of the most successful comedians in the country, and he started out as a blue coat at Pontins. His stand-up comedy really took off at the Edinburgh Fringe in 1995. Countless tours have followed, as well as a coveted position as team captain on Would I Lie to You, which won him a BAFTA. Lee has also written and starred in the UK's longest-running sitcom, Not Going Out, and he presents his own game show, as well as Freeze the Fear with Wim Hof, hence the ice bath. Lee says he's a great one for giving something a go, and a few years ago decided to stop drinking alcohol and hasn't looked back. So we're also going to chat to behavioural change expert and coach Andy Ramage, who pioneered the One Year No Beer platform and co-founded Dry App. I'm really looking forward to seeing Lee again in a more comfortable setting, a bit cosier this time. So let's get cracking. Lee Mack, welcome to the midpoint. As you just just take, as I was taking my drink, it's drink I, away. I drink just away. honestly thought there was going to be about twenty-five minutes of uh, preamble. I didn't no, realise the opening line was Lee Mack, welcome. <laughs> oh, hello. now I do that. I do that away from you, so as to spare your blushes, because it'll be full of um, lots oh, of see, you do compliments, superlatives, and oh. you know, a reading of your bio. Well, and... that'll be the bit I listen to because I won't have heard that bit. You like an introduction? I'll have a little listen, see what you say about me, and then. A bit like when you buy someone's autobiography and you think, am I in that? So you look in the index for your name and That's if you're exactly not, you don't bother reading it. Claire Balding said to me, she rang yeah. me and she said, I've looked, I'm nowhere in it. I said, you are in it. She said, but you're not putting me in the index. I said, I didn't do an index. Don't do an index. And that way no. everyone has to read your book. Exactly. To find out if they're in it. It's great to have you here. I've been uh, trying to get you on this for quite a while, actually. For lots of reasons, you're a very interesting man who I think has got a lot that our midlife midpoint listeners will be very intrigued to hear about, the way your life has developed in the midlife. Well, hopefully, yeah, let's find out. They, well, might, yeah. they might say, well, if that's what we thought, anyway, and then we're not interested in a word he has to say. Do you think people know who you really are? Ooh, I don't know. You never know. Do you? I'd like to think, I suppose we all think this, don't we? If we work on telly, that I, I'm one of the private ones. That's what I think in mm. my head. But we all think that, right? Can't be that private, otherwise we wouldn't be sat in here. But you, surely you being recognised is because you're on mainstream TV doing big shows. Congratulations on your NTA, by Thank the way, you as very well, much. for 1% Club. But you're doing huge things in people's living rooms, but that doesn't mean that your family necessarily have to be recognised. So you've kept that very private. I think so. I mean, every now and again, there'll be something where my... I don't know, like, there'll be some red carpet event, which I think I tend to avoid them, but it might be something that my daughter really wants to go to. So we've done one or two of them. Like, we went to Cirque du Soleil. You know, you can't make it black and white. You know, I've even allowed my daughter to be in my sitcom because she's very good at acting. And right. I thought, it's only a very small part, and the other two had been in it. Just a little, like, yeah, you yeah. blink and you'd miss some tight moments. I thought, well, she's got to be in it as well. So... 
in some respects, it's not completely private, is it? Because mm. you're and, and as I say, doing something like this, if you're completely private, you would never do anything like this if you were private, would you? I think it'd be virtually impossible, though, to be in the modern age to be completely private. Yeah, and I also feel like if you give a little bit of information, you're better off letting them know you've got a boring life, I guess. <laughs> and then the thing, if that's if that's a bit of what he's got to offer, let's not root in his bins. So, I, so people probably don't know that, for example, you've been seven years now teetotal. Do you know what? I think it's seven years. I'm not sure. Whenever I did a the play called The Miser, if any of your listeners went to see it, they'll know. But that's a very niche market. That's yeah, about stuff. seven years now, not had a drink. But I should point out, whenever you say to people you've not had a drink for seven years, they usually give you the look. Now, I know you won't give me this look because you're Gabby and you'll just keep going, I want to know everything, right? But some people give you the look of, oh, and they don't want to carry on talking because they think, does that mean he was waking up in a skip? Yeah. You know, what, what are we talking here? So I was just... I don't know where to start with this subject because I'm quite passionate about the old subject of alcohol. But mm. by society's definition, I would be classed as a normal drinker, probably. Mm. If I told you what I drank before I gave up drinking, you go, yeah, that sounds about what I have before lunch. No, you wouldn't <laughs> say that. But, you know, I'd be classed as normal, in inverted commas. But then you get onto a question of what is normal. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, And you have some history in the family of big drinkers. Yeah, so we I grew up in a pub in Blackburn and Rochdale. So, you know, I've been surrounded by it. Both my parents and my brother had drinking problems. Mm. Uh, none of them are alive anymore. And so I have... I just basically... I, it's, when my parents and my brother died, I didn't immediately stop drinking. It was a good few years after that that I thought, I'm going to stop drinking now. And I genuinely believe, had I not grown up in that environment, I'd still probably not drink now. Right. I still believe I've got a more rational a view of it all than an emotive view that made me stop drinking. You weren't worried? It wasn't predicated by a thought that you would go down the same road? Well, no, because I read a book that basically changed my whole attitude towards alcohol, and that was, um, you know, the Alan Carr book. Mm -hmm. Not the comedian. Not the comedian. Not the comedian. <laughs> if, if Alan Carr, the comedian, offers any advice about <laughs> any sort of addiction, it's probably best to just steer clear, because I don't think he knows what he's talking about. I do wonder about, about the people who end up with his biography who thought they were going to give up cigarettes. Yeah, I worry yeah. about those people. I worry about the people that bought the Stop Smoking book, thinking it was going to be very funny. <laughs> <laughs> to be honest with you. Um, so Alan Carr, the person who helps people stop doing lots of bad Yeah, habits. so my wife was a smoker. She stopped smoking overnight. She went to these uh, sessions and the, the deal is you go to an Alan Carr stop smoking session and, and guaranteed to stop you smoking or your, or, your, or your money back or you go back and have more sessions or whatever. And it worked. And then we had the kids and that was 18, 19 years ago and she's never looked back, never smoked. Right. So I was interested to read the alcohol version mm -hmm. of it. More out of curiosity, to be honest with you, because I didn't have a great desire to stop drinking necessarily, but I was just thought, I wonder what they said about alcohol then, because all the smoking bit was brilliant, totally makes sense what, what she read to me. And so I read this book, and it completely changed my attitude towards the whole subject about... So if you'd have asked me this before I read the book, I would have said, yeah, I would have been worried that I'll go down the same route. Because mm -hmm. what you mean really, perhaps, is, is it... Is it passed on? Mm. Is it genetic? And a lot of people do believe that you do pass it on, yeah. And I think you do pass it on, but not genetically. No. But culturally. Yeah. That's what's passed it's on. It's the behaviours that the behaviour can be passed on, yeah. Mm. So... How hard was it? It, it? How hard was it? It's an old joke to say it's dead easy to stop smoking. I've done it loads of times. But it was sort of like that. I read it, decided I didn't want to drink anymore, then went back to the drinking, then read it again. Then it was a bit of that going on for a few years. Mm. Where, but eventually, obviously... in. I remember reading the book and drinking differently. I remember thinking, I, I know now why I'm drinking, mm -hmm. whereas I never really knew, but now I know why I'm drinking, which is, it's just addictive. 
You know, that's the reason. All the thing that's put on it is a load of nonsense. And how much did your life change when you look back and the person that you are now and how productive you are or how you... People want to know, always want to know the upsides, don't they? Yeah, they do. Yeah, they want to say, do you... F-? I always say the same thing. People go, do you feel better for it? And I go, not really. <laughs> but but that's part of the thing because part of what I learned from reading this book is everybody puts so much onto alcohol. So if you have a great time, mm. right, you go, that's because I was drunk, right? But we also associate it with the negative. So if you are out late boozing and you wake up the next morning, you say, I've got a hangover mm. because of all the drinking. And I've noticed in stopping drinking, I still get a form of hangover, which is I'm out till three in the morning, I come back, get up for the kids. If my wife's listening, she'll go, you do what? I go, I get up <laughs> roughly the same time as the kids. And I feel a bit like, the effects of a hangover, mm-hmm. because a lot of a hangover is to do with the fact you've only had a few hours sleep, perhaps. Mm-hmm. But because we put everything onto the booze, we assume that take the booze away, then all the negatives go away. But actually, the problem is we're just associating alcohol with things that isn't because of the alcohol, whether it's negative or positive, particularly positive. Was it particularly hard in your industry? Yes and no, I suppose. I mean, it's there's a lot of free booze in showbiz. There really is. Every green room after Do a Do you not like show. paying for things? I, no. As soon as I had to... As soon as, <laughs> to soon as my career went downhill and I had to start actually buying it, it was easy to give up. But it's, it is everywhere, you mm. know. But what I found is every time you do one thing that you associate it with... So the first Christmas day without booze mm. is weird. And then it doesn't feel weird at all after that. The first wedding you go to without booze, it's all that kind of stuff, you know. Yeah, your first. The first. Did you start leaving things earlier at the beginning? The first time you make love sober. (laughs) You know, it's all right after that. It's not as frightening. (laughs) Did you start being the person that left quite early from events at the beginning of it? And now have you got used to staying at events longer? Again, not, not, but I mean, I will probably leave a bit earlier now than I used to do, only because... People start getting People drunk. People start getting drunk. And then you, and you go, I'll tell, you, I'll tell you what it is. A lot of the time, you do you know that thing where when you drink and you, you video it or some phone footage and then you go, oh, what a laugh. Oh, was it brilliant? Was it brilliant? And then you see the footage and you go, oh, it wasn't quite as good as I remember it being. Because it's clouded, isn't it? So when you're sober, you go, yes, great party, but three or four hours is probably enough now. As opposed to, I'm drunk and I want this to carry on all through the night. The other thing that people might not know, and I know you've spoken a bit about it as well, and you've got a podcast that's been related to it, is your Buddhism. Yeah, I mean, I'm very careful to talk about this because it, it sounds like I am saying I'm a Buddhist, when in fact I'm interested in Buddhism, and I did a, bud- a podcast. A podcast. Bud- I like that. Quite, I like that. Yeah. Yeah, that's quite. I might use that. Yeah. Podcast. I went for the far more stupid play on words of I can't believe it's not Buddha, which I can't help thinking that the pun came first and then I thought I'd better do a podcast about Buddhism just to justify it. But I did a year of that. But the, the point of the podcast was me and my mate, who I went to university with, we both sort of got a bit interested in the subject. And I, and I really do mean interested in the subject as opposed to feeling like we were Buddhists. But also we'd stopped drinking, the pair of us, and we'd both become vegan stroke vegetarian. Right. Who is this twin? <laughs> so this is this is my mate Neil, and uh, he's been in our industry. He's a writer, he's a producer. So we've known each other for years, you know. And we both wanted to go on a journey to find out is the truth and is the a positive aspect of being a Buddhist, vegan, not drinker, or are we just a pair of showbiz wankers? <laughs> 
that's what we wanted to find out. Is it just that we're just a, you know, we've become that cliche of all the things you do when you're in showbiz. Yeah. And that was what we were trying to find out. And what was the result? Turns out you can be both. Right. You can be a Buddhist and a showbiz wanker. How long has this journey been going? I suppose it was, yeah, I think that came first. But it depends how you define Buddhism. I mean, I was, um, I got into meditating. That's all I did. I just did it as a, I got told it was... Proper a good, meditating. Well, it starts off, it depends how you define proper meditating. I'm sure a real hardcore meditator would go, that's not proper meditating, mate. But I started off with the two 20 minutes a day, mm. TM, Transcendental Meditation. We have a mantra, so I did that twice a day. And then it becomes once a day and then it drifts away a bit and then you don't do it again for a while and then you go back to it. Have you meditated today? I've not meditated today because I knew that if I spoke to you, it would feel like I was going to sleep anyway. I don't, I don't mean because you're boring. I don't mean that. But I meant I'd be sinking to a lower level of activity in my brain. I'd just be, it'd right. be relaxed. Okay. You relax me, Gabby. Not, not a lower level of intellect. No, no, it means, <laughs> I knew I'd be lowering my mind a lot today. No, I mean. That You'd feel so grounded. I think, I think, if I'm going to be honest, I just woke up late. I didn't have time to do it. That's the So on thing. average, in an average week. Well, this you... is the problem, isn't it? When people say, it's like, like drinking we know when the doctors you fill in the form how many units a week do you drink you go which week yeah are we talking the christmas week are we talking the week where i was working with that bloke who's a really heavy drinker or are we talking that week where i went away with my family to touch booze all the <laughs> yeah. way so it's very hard to say at this moment in my life i've just got back into it again right so i'm trying to do it every day once a day for about half an hour when in fact you should really do it twice a day for 20 minutes how does it leave you feeling then not massively different. I think the cumulative effect is how you what you get. Every now and again, if I really get into meditating for, say, three or four months, I'll suddenly find myself in a position where I go, I would have normally kicked off about that. Right. Like if someone asked you to do a podcast and you're not getting paid. <laughs> I would have gone really, you, had, I'd have gone really had, you've angry. You've had two coffees because Kenny had to make the second one because you don't drink yeah. uh, cow's milk. We should say that for the record. I'm realising in the short time I've been in your house, Gabby, just how much Kenny does because he's he's <laughs> landscaped the whole area. He's told me that. He's then had to, your microphone fell off. Hence I'm holding and, it. And you had to bring him in to, to do that. And he also, he had to make the coffee as well. He, I'm loves, wondering what, he what, loves me lots. I'm wondering what you're doing in this relationship, Gabby. <laughs> We can talk about what you that bring it to the what, table. What do I? Well, the table yeah. for a start. Yeah, that's true. Um, so, so this whole period has happened kind of in your late forties, uh, early mid forties, late forties. Yeah, I guess. I so guess. it could, from the outside, look like a you know a midlife bit of a, crisis. Well, or a midlife change. You know, a bit of a churn that goes on. Yeah. And was maybe. it? Was it? Did it start off with a questioning about what? What's this all I, about? This this idea of midlife crisis. It's always got a negative spin. Mm. The word midlife crisis. I love the concept of a midlife mm. crisis because I think we live in a world where we're we're, we're all very Western consumerism uh, driven, mm. and so maybe when you reach the mid part of your life, it's a crisis in that belief system, and you go, I'm not sure this is all what it's you know panned out to be. This this is this is so you have a crisis about it. Mm. So maybe the word midlife crisis is a good thing. Because, mm. I mean, don't get a sports car, a, you know, and a 21-year-old girlfriend. Not that kind of midlife mm -hmm, crisis. Mm -hmm. But if you get, um, if you start questioning the way we are led to believe in mm. our society and you want to change, that's, that's a good crisis. Well, the, the original phrase came from a scientist who was studying this in the 1960s. And it took seven years for the rest of the psychology kind of world to buy into his ideas. And uh, he, he coined the phrase midlife crisis. He was looking particularly at these quite high intellect men who were working in high powered jobs. I mean, I mean men because it's the 1960s, mm. right? Women obviously were no good for, for anything then. They didn't, you know, barely got the vote. So he was looking at these men who questioned everything suddenly when they got into their 50s. And they were in these great.
great jobs. And that's when he wrote this paper about what was happening in the middle. And then sure enough that the working class and women were also allowed to have them about 10 to 15 years later when, <laughs> when they caught up. And that was, a, and so actually it stemmed in academic research. And so I think you're right. The word crisis does make it seem like something and the sitcom version uh, is is slightly more kind of comedic isn't it the bloke with the fast car and the well, young yeah, exactly a midlife crisis usually means harley davidson mm. uh, leave your wife and end up with some young 21 year old girl that's how we how we picture the midlife mm. crisis but there are other forms of midlife crisis where people go i, I can't carry on just doing the way i'm mm. the, what i'm doing what i've been mm. told to do since i was born which is earn as much money as you can be as successful as you possibly can be and drink <laughs> It's true. And then people who decide to step back maybe and change direction, you know, I, I think it's quite brave to totally change direction at that that point. You haven't totally changed direction because you still do your, the job that you love, obviously. Yeah. And and I, was there ever any questioning of that? That, you know, do I want to keep standing in front of people and making them laugh? Uh, no, I mean obviously within the job you go. Do I do want to do that show still, or do mm. I would I like to? Uh... And have you been more discerning like that in terms of what you've taken on? I'm definitely as I get older. I'm, I wouldn't say more discerning. I tend to look at which gives you the most days off. <laughs> so you know, I I look at the day. I I love time off now more than I ever have before. I I speak to people like I can't believe it's me. You know, I spoke to someone recently. Said when you were writing the first series of your sitcom, you were finishing work at four o'clock because you're writing all day. Mm -hmm in an office with other people and then jumping on the train or getting in the car and going on tour, doing my tour dates. Oh. I remember the time thinking, yeah, but it's not, I've had proper hard jobs. This mm -hmm. is still an easy job, right? Mm -hmm. In relation to the, mm. the past when I used to earn very little money for doing fairly hard, I mean, physically hard jobs, you know, not not stressful jobs. But So I just thought, well, what are you whinging about? It's dead easy, this. But now I'm getting older, I think, yeah, I quite like having less. People often like say, and rightly so, you know, oh, you've got the best job in the world, you work on telly. And it, it is true to some degree. I wouldn't say the best job in the world. Best job in the world is a footballer. I wasn't good enough for that. So I've got the second best job in the world. And they go, oh, it's great that you're doing this. I go, yeah, it's brilliant, it's brilliant. I mean, it's not as good as lying on the sofa and watching Match of the Day. That's even better. But that doesn't pay as well. It does and, for you. you <laughs> but not, not, for, not for normal people who are watching You wouldn't want it. to do that all day long, though. No, not all day long. It depends, who the, it depends who's on. Do you, you know what I mean? during the World Cup, would you take oh, as much time as you can and just sit and watch football I, matches? World Cup, that's, I mean, I, I will, I've designated rooms for the World Cup. So I've moved a sofa into a room, put the big screen up, and I will watch literally every single game. I don't I will, you were that I will, about I will take time off. Well, that's waning a bit as the years have gone on. But certainly up until about maybe the last couple of World Cups, I wouldn't miss a game. I'd go. We'd go to the matches in Germany and stuff like that. Germany was the best World Cup. That's great. 2010 right? was amazing. Yeah. yeah. 2006. 2006 even, 2010 yeah, South so, Africa. You know, you can't be expected to know these things. It's not like it's your job. <laughs> 2010 with South Africa, 2006. Yeah. I just don't want it to be that long ago because that yeah. means it's nearly 20 years ago. 2006, I'm afraid. God. Um, so just in leisure time, just just being, just enjoying yourself, not not having specific hobbies. Well... Getting green fingers? You asked me a, a, a very good time because we're doing a show which is called The, the Midpoint and I've realised there are things happening where I go, I would never have done that in the past. Only this morning, measuring up for a greenhouse. I had a man come round. Who are you? To, and I actually heard myself say, he says, you you should put a tap on the inside of the green. I said, great, let's do that then. He said, uh, and we'll put it there. He showed me a picture. And I said, right, that, that tap is quite low, isn't it? He went, yeah, well, you put your, your thing on the floor and you fill it. I went, but there, I've got to pick it up. Can we not have the tap eye so I can have the, the watering can on a table? Then I'm not having to it. bend over to pick it up. What, what, what is happening to me? I don't want to bend over and pick something up. You're future-proofing it for, for your 70-year-old self. Maybe. Who might not want Which to. Which is not that far. I'm 55 now. 
You... I've come a bit late to the midpoint podcast. No, 68 is the cutoff point, although we did let Richard Madeley on because um, he kindly filled in at the last minute. <laughs> oh, who was 68? Uh, no, we haven't had a specific 68, but according to the Economic and Social Research Council, 68 is the end of the midlife. And then you're into the twilight years. Oh, or, I see. Yeah, you're not suggesting yeah. you can live 68 more years after 68. No, no, no. When they say mid, I think it's the mid-band, really. It's so the... I've got up until 68 yeah, to say ages. I'm mid, mid, yes, middle-aged. Yeah, you're middle-aged. Oh, that makes yeah. me feel better. You've got loads of time. I remember loads when I turned 50 and I was uh, watching daytime TV on my 50th birthday because it was a hell of a day. <laughs> this is what happens when you stop drinking. There was uh, an advert. For, Michael Parkinson was the voiceover of a... Um, have you planned for your funeral? One of them, right? <laughs> for just £25 a month, all this. And there's a couple of really old people on a bed. I mean, really old was the image. And you get a free pen if you apply today, all this. And the last thing I saw was a caption called said, only, over 50s only. Oh, no. And I went, oh, that's me now, is it? That tar- I'm the target of that advert. Like Saga, you know, yeah, yeah. the holidays. You can't go on a Saga unless you're 50. Yeah. And then suddenly I realised I could. And I wanted to. Because, <laughs> because I thought, I'll be the bit of totty. I'll be that young bit of fluff to go. Got a young one in today, aren't we? Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. us on to your industry then which has loads of young people trying to make it some of them do some of them don't but you know, and then there's those who've kind of made it now they're on to telly and then there's the band of you who have been on our tellies for a long time and are still doing great work and uh, you know I've spoken to a few comedians on this podcast about how you feel about yourself in the industry in terms of the comedy that you have you know that you that you use and how the industry has changed and how you feel about looking back and thinking, oh, God, the, the whippersnappers are coming. Yeah, well, it's what's changed in my sort of period of comedy. When I started, I, was, I started out in the mid-90s. And what was true then was that stand-up comedy was not on television. It mm. ju- it was, there was a thing that people said for a long time after that, which was stand-up just doesn't work on TV. And what that meant was everyone that was doing stand-up was doing it because they wanted to be a stand-up and no other reason. Because mm. if you wanted to be famous or on the telly, you were in the wrong job because it wasn't going on telly. Mm. And so it's easy to look back through rose-tinted glasses, but it is true that of those of us that started around that time, there was a more pure feeling about it, Mm. about we just wanted to be on the circuit, maybe do a tour in a theatre, but that's all I wanted from it. What did you see as being the end game then? Just bigger crowds, bigger, bigger venues? I didn't really see it. I genuinely didn't see an endgame. I remember going the to the moment. comedy store in 1990, watching Steve Coogan and Eddie Izzard, and, like, and it was a real sort of life-changing moment. Going, I don't even knew I wanted to be a comedian, but I didn't know what that meant or will you do it. You'd been a red coat, hadn't you, before by this point? Blue coat. Blue coat, sorry. Red coat are the Protestants, blue coats are the Catholics. <laughs> Never gets a mix-up. 
But yeah, I was a blue coat at Pontins. Right. But that was before that, and that was nothing to do with entertainment. I was the sports organiser. So everyone else was a performer, and I went as a sports organiser, right. even though I wasn't very good at any sport. But I just bluffed my way in. I thought I'd be a laugh doing that job. So I'll say, look, I can't do anything on stage. Do you do any performing in that job? Well, you end up having to perform. Yeah. But when I turned up, they were all from like a fame type academy. They could all do summer. And me and the bloke I ended up showing a chalet with, who's now my oldest mate, Saul, they said, you two can't do anything. So just stand at the back when they're all singing and dancing. Just wave your hands. <laughs> and, and also, I, they were all 17 and I was 18. So I was the only one that was allowed in the adult bar. So they made me the DJ. Right. And so I had to sort of get on the mic and introduce things and do things. So it, g- it gave me a good sort of training in holding a mic. So the mm. first time I ever did stand-up, at least I'd held a mic before. But I wasn't a performer mm. by any means. And in fact, I had my first... I was so wanted to be a stand-up, but didn't know how to do it, that I got drunk one night and actually had a go at doing it at Pontins. And I can't tell the anecdote because it ends in a very bad word. But, really bad? Well, I'll let you watch it afterwards. It's on the it's on YouTube, on the Graham Norton show. Okay. You... Lee Matt Bluecoat story. Okay. It's all there. <laughs> so jump forwards again. So we've gone back to, to yeah. Pontins. Going back to the, the, the early stand-up, you're just loving it and just living... Yeah, so I do, this, I do this thing of going to the comedy store, seeing all these brilliant comedians in this small little room, thinking the old comedy store, which was even smaller. And I thought, I, I definitely want to do this, but there's no way I can do it. I was mm. about... 20 at the time 21 I can't do this I've got to be like these people and these people are all emotionally sorted brilliant wise grounded people how can you ever get on the stage with even an ounce of insecurity they're a different breed little did you know if I'd have known (laughs) then what I know now I'd have got up that night but I I I spent the next four or five years trying to become that person so I like traveled the world for a year I thought, if I travel the world, I'll mature and become How wise, like so these people on you stage. You worked on yourself as a person as opposed to a comedian. Yeah, I just thought, uh, it wasn't like a great plan, no. but I just thought, I would love to do this. Impossible for me to do it. So I've just got to grow up a bit. I'm 20. These guys are, they might be in their 20s, but they seem about 50. But I knew that I was. It, they were so different to me. It turns out they weren't that different to me. And the first day I'm in a dressing room as an open spot, and I realised that, that they're all coming off stage going, was that funny? Did, did that work? Do you think that's fine? I'm like, what are you doing? I thought I had to be like some sort of emotionally grounded person and you're all... As full of insecurities. Full of insecurities. Like I am about getting on stage, you know. The, yeah, but you, you project this image of what these people are, you know. And it was also that first gig in 1990 was the day after Thatcher resigned. So everyone was talking about it. And I thought... I'm not political enough. I don't know about this. And also 1990s comedy mm. was very politically yeah, driven. Yeah, so yeah. what do I know about this world? Well, they were the only comedians that really did get on telly, weren't they? The ones that yeah, were quite even, political. Absolutely, like Friday Night Live and yeah. stuff. But again, it was still that thing of, you know, if you look at the comedians on Friday Night Live in the 80s with Ben Elton, these people didn't go on Friday Night Live and then tour on the back of it. They A lot of them just went back on the circuit. Mm. Some of them did. It helped launch people like Harry Enfield and stuff. But the majority would go do a bit and come back to the circuit. So you had to love stand-up to want to be a stand-up. And was that when, at that period, that period of time, and you'd gone off and done your travelling and come back, was there a conscious kind of decision in which direction your comedy would go? Because you seem to always have ridden through comedy without 
hurting, upsetting people, being, you know, you don't use, you, you have jokes at people's expense and yet you leave them feeling almost flattered that you've done that rather than... Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one because, yeah, I think... Is that because you're a nice person? I'm absolutely lovely. I mean, who am I to say? But yeah, I think I'm pretty perfect. <laughs> no, I think, I think a lot of it is to do genuinely with um, accents. Mm-hmm. I think if you're from the northwest of England, people go, oh, you little cheeky northern fella, isn't he lovely? They've got this sort of image, and, and this can really backfire. You know, mm. I, I don't do corporate gigs anymore, but I did one, did a few, but I did one particular, the last one I ever did for Waitrose and uh, other overpriced supermarkets are available. And well, they've, they're, they're so corporate, mm. these people, particularly big supermarkets like that, they don't just book you. They send someone along to watch you to check exactly what you're like, to see if you're right. So two people who don't really know about comedy, but they know about the brand of Waitrose, they come, they watch... And, they, and that, I can see what's gone wrong. They've seen me in a packed theatre to audiences who like me already and have paid to see me, and it's all going perfectly well. And they don't realise that I'm actually swearing like a trooper. But but they don't hear the swearing. They just hear the, the cheeky the northern lad, mm. you know. So they go, oh, he's harmless, he's great. And then they bring me in, and then I do my act, and then it's all changed, and it all goes <laughs> silence. And they, they go, oh, no, in the cold light of days, the subject matter is different than what we thought it was, when it's not covered by laughter, yeah, you know. Yeah. So I've heard of a few, I've done a, um, there's a corporate I do every year, and they always have big comedians on in the post-lunch slot. They've had, oh, um, so Man- already sounds horrific. Well, Man- Manford's done it uh, a few times. Um, I think they might have even in the early days had McIntyre. Anyway, apparently for the evening dinner, they once had Frankie Boyle, who lasted three minutes. Of course. Because... <laughs> yeah, but see, I, don't, I immediately hear that story, and I don't go... That's Frankie's fault. That's the fault of the person booking Frankie, isn't it? How did they possibly think that was right for a corporate event? I mean, I have to say, that the slot, post-lunch slot now has had people like Seb Coe and Michael oh. Johnson. <laughs> so of they've course. gone a very different direction. That's a def- yeah, yeah. I would say that, you know, Seb Coe's act is a little bit cleaner than Frankie Boyle's. <laughs> would that be fair to say? I've never seen Michael's, but certainly <laughs> Seb Coe's. But why, why, would, yeah, why would they even book him? And, and even for the evening slot and hope that. So, so you... So you stay away from those things, even though they could be very lucrative because... Yeah, but they're lucrative, but they just... Soul-destroying? For me, it depends Mm. who you are, but I I mean, I haven't done stand-up for years anyway. I I sort of... Are you tempted to do a big state? I mean, you could pack out the O2 for 10 nights. Well, I don't know about 10 nights, but I could certainly... Uh, I mean, that greenhouse that you're about to buy, that, that not, you could certainly that could cover be covered off with... That's, a... <laughs> I, when I got the price for it, I thought, let me know, I might have to go back on tour. I mean, there's not a lot of brick, it's mainly glass. <laughs> Surely that's got to be cheaper, isn't it? And it's only famously over one floor. You, you only get bungalow you're greenhouses. Two, you're not having Kew Gardens, no, no two tiers. No. Would, would, is the thought of going on a big tour, is, is it daunting because of the material you'd have to write, or is it because of the... Well, again, it goes back to the, the time off. Yeah. I love time off. And so what nothing... I, I do different genres of comedy. So I've got my sitcom panel games. I do the quiz show now. So, But nothing is as difficult per hour as stand-up writing. So to write an hour of stand-up takes a lot longer than an hour of sitcom. You never have to write an hour of sitcom. You have to write three or four hours of sitcom. So it does become just as long to write. Mm. But stand-up's different. You You have to write it, but at least half of it is just trying it out evolving on stage. It takes me about a year from a blank piece of mm. paper to a thing that I would remotely say is ready to go on tour. So that's a year. And you haven't even toured it yet. Mm. And then to, and then you tour it and that can take up to a, a year. So you've got to be really motivated to want It's to a two-year window of your life that you've got to be, you've got to absolutely love doing. And I've dipped my toes back in thinking, oh, I'm going to go, oh, I missed this. And I just didn't. I dipped my toes in for other reasons, just to try stuff out for mm. a telly show. 
And I didn't, I liked it, but I didn't get that, oh my God, I've missed this. Because again, it's great, but it's not as good as lying on the sofa watching Match of the Day. <laughs> In a lot of ways, Gabby, my lack of career is down to you. <laughs> do, you uh, do you think it's a young man's game then? Or, or at least a, a Match young... of the Day. <laughs> Don't tell Gary. Yeah, <laughs> He's definitely been not a young man's game, Match of the Day. <laughs> is, it, is, it, you know, is it a sub-50 man's game then? No, I don't, don't, not at all. No, no. I, uh, I don't it's think nothing it's... nothing to do with age. No, and I do, I will slowly, I keep thinking I've got to go back to it because it's the thing that... There's a lot of freedom with stand-up. You know, you, you you are just dealing with you, nobody else. All right, and the audience. Mm. But your your own editor, anything mm. that you think... You're not beholden to a controller of a channel. Absolutely. And anything that is... Mm, is that going to be now seen in the wrong uh, context now mm. when it's put on television? Mm. You don't have that in stand-up. Stand-up is more of a... Rela- they, they're already... They get it. So if you say something which is pushing something, then they go, yeah, we know what his intention... Intention seems to have gone out the window now. It doesn't matter what someone's intention was. Mm. It's what you did that matters. Mm. And I think that's a shame. I think the intention of why you said something Mm -hmm. is the most important thing, right? The amount of time... So is there a bit of a fear that perhaps your comedy... It's not the fear. It's just a bit more hard work. If you you do a joke, "Mm, well, we better check with so-and-so, and and what do you think, and then... Because people will be so surprised to hear you having those thoughts because they think of your comedy as being something that's, uh, you know, much more family-focused and clean and benign compared to, you know... I mean, Jimmy Carr famously says, doesn't he, the thing that's going to get him cancelled has already been said. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I think Jimmy could get cancelled for something he's going to say as well in the future. (laughs) I think he'd come any time with Jimmy. My theory... You know, you get asked a lot about this. It's been a subject... Sorry, it's not an important question. No, no, no. No, it's... But but the... For me, in principle, there isn't... And I mean this, in principle, there isn't anything that you can't do a joke about, right? Nothing. But, But... for me, the joke has to be funnier than it is shocking. So the more shocking the subject matter, the better the joke has to be. And there are some subject matters that are so shocking, no one is good enough to think of a joke that's funnier than it is shocking. So in principle, you can do a joke about anything, but in practice, you can't because no one's that good. So if you picked out an individual example, and I wouldn't want you to, you go, what about this horrific event? Would you be able to do a joke joke like that? In principle, yeah. But I personally couldn't think... I could spend two years trying to write a magic joke about that that was more funny than shocking and I'd never achieve it. And that's the problem. Sometimes comedians are doing jokes that just aren't funny enough because they're not f- they have to be even funnier when it's that shocking. And that's the problem. But have audiences since your early 90s days uh, become... Mid- mid-90s, more... I'm not that old. Sorry. <laughs> mid-, mid to late. Mid to late fact, 90s yeah. become more sensitive, sensitised. Well, I, I didn't do the clubs for a long time. And then I went back and I said to the promoter, Has, have things changed in, in what can and can't be said? And he said something which was quite telling. He said, what I've noticed is as the comedians are far more clear on stage about what they're trying to say. Now, it used to be there was a, sometimes a joke would be a deliberate ambiguity about it. So you'd be making a point and the, and the joke might be, am I being ironically whatever, sexist, or am I being sexist? Am I making, am I saying, can you imagine if I really felt this, what an awful human being I would be mm-hmm. to make a point that I'm not that person, mm-hmm. or am I just a sexist person, mm-hmm. right? Those days are gone, well, according to this promoter. The, you're just very clear. You are anti-this or pro-this or 
you're far more defined. There's less room for a grey area. Do you think social media has an impact on that? Because a lot of that stuff happened probably before social media was as rampant and rife and well used. And maybe when people spot things now, it becomes a kind of viral thing, doesn't it? That people talk about, God, you can slip up on match of the day, you know, and 4,000 people will let you know about it. Or Is that all the viewing figures on it? <laughs> Not all of them are as upset about it as others. But, you know, back in the day, I always quote that when I worked at Sky, yeah. people had to write a letter yes. if they were bothered by you. So right? it, took, it took more effort. Yeah, and they just didn't bother. It took more they? effort to complain. And then yeah. the minute they were able to just press, you know, send on the phone, obviously yeah. it was it was so much easier. I to, think that about, you must get the thing, uh, will you sign this petition online? You know, yeah. Will you sign <laughs> it online? And often if I support the cause, I will sign mm, it. Mm. But part of me thinks I'm cheating. I go, that took three clicks, that. (laughs) In the old days, you'd have to actually write your name. You might even have to go post it to somebody. You know, there was an effort involved. And so it's definitely easy. I mean, I'm nothing to do with social media. I have no social media presence apart from, I think, I have a Facebook page that somebody runs to just say Mm. he's he's doing this or this show's coming out. But I make it very clear that you must... It's not you. Yeah, it must be Lee is doing this, that, Are you anti it or are you just... I am a bit, yeah. Yeah. I'm a little bit anti it, not because well, I don't you, know. Your kids must be on various oh, social medias. Of course they are. So yeah. how do you how do you kind of square that off in your head? Oh, well, because I, I you know I have to square a lot. You know what it's like if you've got teenage kids and you're a child of the seventies. You have to accept that mm. everything has massively changed. Do you not hear this though all the time back from your kids? It's different now. Yeah, all Dad. you had was a stick and a hoop. That's what they say to me a lot. You had Things a stick and a now. hoop. Yeah. And I always go, yeah, but mine was a rechargeable stick and hoop. <laughs> it was quite advanced at the time. But, I mean, look, it's changed a lot. It keeps evolving. But I remember when Twitter first came out that I would be slightly obsessed with if there was a Twitter storm about one person and they were getting upset. And I know some of these people and they'd tell me personally, you know, I'd just either say to them or think privately, but you've basically given your address now, all right, it's a Twitter address mm. or a whatever you call it, but you've said, my door is open if you would like to tell me anything. Right? And if I was at home and I was watching the telly and someone opened the letterbox and shouted, Lee, Matt, you're rubbish. And my wife looked at me and I went, I ignore that. And then we carried on watching Match of the Day. And then another one came through. I don't know if we can swear on this uh, podcast, but let's yeah. not for now. You can fill in your own words, you know. Oi, Lee, Matt, I think you're an absolute. And this happened 20 times. And then my wife said, what the hell's going on? And I said, Look, ignore it. I've put a sign on the door that said, please feel free to shout what you think through the letterbox. Who is she mad- madder with? The people shouting or me for putting the sign up outside the door? It would be me, right? She'd say, take the sign off the door, Lee, because you're asking for this, aren't you? And to some degree, I used to think that, and still do a bit, about social media. Mm. If you've got a presence on social media and you're talking to people, don't get too annoyed if they talk back. Yeah. And if you are annoyed, don't talk in the first place. Yeah, I think that's probably the, the, the golden rule, isn't it? You've got to have some kind of skin whether it's a thick skin yeah. or, or, or an armoury between yourself and those people. Otherwise, it's not the place for you. It's not the place. And also, it's a little... I just don't know. I sometimes think it's a bit like... Twitter or social media is a bit like, please tell me what you think of me. I think you're great. Thank you. I think you're brilliant. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. I hate you. I wasn't asking you. <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't that a bit what Twitter is? It's like, tell me what you think of me. As long By as it's way, nice. It's called X now. Just Sorry. <laughs> X. 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 X, I think, yeah. Oh, um, I'm oh, going to bring up... I changed your mind. I want it. 
expert on actually. Expert, like, is that your expert. Link? Yeah, it was it was beautifully segued wow, there. Wow, I see why you uh, get the, the Andy the, the Ramage. There he is. Andy is oh, Andy. Uh, our expert today. who has been listening in intently, by the way. Yeah. He's been eavesdropping into our hey, conversation. Do you know what? He looks like a man who's been looking at his phone and hasn't been listening to a word. <laughs> Andy is. Uh, what, would you, what would you say your overall title is? I, I, having read through all your material, and um, I mean specifically, we're going to talk to you today about your program to help people stop drinking. Um, but you're you're a coach of all kinds of things, aren't you? A life coach. Yes, exactly. I guess an entrepreneur, predominantly in the alcohol-free space, really, for the last ten years, trying to inspire people to take a proactive break from alcohol. That's what it's been all about, really. Tell us how you started. So the original story, I was fortunate enough to, to play football oh, in my early teens. And then, oh, I wasn't very good. Exactly. Gillingham and Leighton Orient. And oh, then you weren't very good either. 21. <laughs> no, exactly. Well, for two reasons, I got injured and I wasn't very good. And that was the end of that. And I travelled the world, ended up in the, the, the world of Broken, the guys in the bright jackets that scream and shout at one another and lived that life. Fast forward 10 years, I'd reached that place of material success, but was inwardly really unfulfilled in many ways. So I did something no one had ever done in that industry, a bit like Lee, for an average drinker. So I described myself as a middle lane drinker. That was someone that would drink averagely, sometimes heavily, sometimes not at all, sometimes moderately, which is about 70% of the population. I stopped drinking and it was transformational for me. I lost a lot of weight. I lost three stone in weight. My anxiety went. I had rosacea disappeared. My business against all the odds boomed. My relationships got better. I had more time, more energy, got my health back, my vitality back. I was just really inspired. I just wanted to share it. I didn't know what to do. So I wrote a little ebook that started a movement called One Year No Beer, which started another initiative called Dry with Two Eyes, which is a free app. And the combination of those two things has inspired hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people to take a proactive break. And Andy, is it a growing movement? Because it feels, I don't know whether it's just because I, you know, have this podcast, but we, it feels like it's, it's growing. Is it growing in midlife? Is that why I'm hearing more about it? Or is it across the board, do you think, as a society? Across the board. So I got into this 10 years ago. So it's 10 years really since I stopped drinking. Like Lee, I think, said he was seven years. would have seen the same as me. It's in the last few years, I think really because of the advent of alcohol-free drinks, which are everywhere now, aren't they? Whereas before, Lee would probably remember there was one Yeah, it was option. awful. Billy Connolly advertised it. Billy <laughs> yeah, Connolly was the face that of that beer. We won't mention it. It's not fair because they were the groundbreakers at the time. So now, obviously, that drink obviously spawned many more. So it should, we should be grateful for its... Yes, uh, that's a good That's yeah. a good spin on that. Well done, Gabby. <laughs> yes. Although I think at the time it literally set us back about 15 years. Well, I'll tell you years. what, I suppose the it difference, was... this is what someone told me, and you might know better than me. Someone once told me that the that alcohol-free beers are brewed the same way as normal beers, but they basically boil out the alcohol. That's what I got told. I don't know if that's true. That is true. There's two ways to make it. They're actually now a way to make it that's straight alcohol-free, but the predominant way is to create exactly the same and then boil out the alcohol. So the process is a bit more involved. But I think over the last three or four years, they're ubiquitous now, aren't they? If you go to a restaurant or to a bar and there's not an alcohol-free alternative, you're almost... It's shocking, isn't it? I went to one last night. And I couldn't believe it that they didn't have it. It was the first time in a long time that they didn't have a. So will an you always go option. for an alcohol-free beer then, as your if if it's a restaurant meal, yeah, I will, yeah. I'll I'll probably have that rather than a fizzy drink. Because the wines, the alcohol-free wines. Oh, they've not good, they've they? not managed no. it. They've not done it. But the alcohol-free gins aren't bad. They are. They there are, are some. Yeah. Some of those are all right. The no secos. And this has all helped, do you think, Andy, in terms of people's? Oh, massively. Yeah. 
Yeah, Lee, remember, you know, if you went to the pub, as I did, right, I was super social. It didn't mean that I didn't stop going out. I went out more, just in a different way. But if you've got to stand there with a Coca-Cola or a fizzy water, it's like a beacon that you're not drinking, whereas now you can socialise with a drink that looks like everyone else's drinks. I mean, the Guinness Zero Zero is incredible. Mm. I think that's changed the game. Yeah, Kenny completely. was saying, actually, he had some of those recently, and he said it's almost like Guinness. For me, um, there, was, there was two things for me that, that, that changed it all. One of them was this realisation that someone said, or I read somewhere, that alcohol doesn't get in your bloodstream for 20 minutes. Now, I remember that feeling Friday night after work, you take a big gulp in the sun, sit outside a pub, and you go, ah, as if it's having some magical alcohol effect on your brain. But that's impossible because it's not in your bloodstream properly. Mm-hmm. It's not gone through. Mm. It's had it's zero effect for at least 20 minutes. So what is really causing that? And when you start analysing it and reading about it, it. There's all sorts of theories about it. it's the first time you've sat down all day, first cold drink you've had all day, first time you've stopped working all day. There's all sorts of psychological reasons why you could feel better for that drink. But it definitely isn't the alcohol for the, for the first bit, guaranteed. It's not in there yet. Mm. It takes a while. And the second one, which is really important to me, and because I'm 55, I've now forgot it. <laughs> but it was really good, the second one. And when I remember, I'll suddenly say it. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly I'll, it'll come and I'll have to interrupt whatever you're saying and it'll go again. Get well, ready for it. I'm getting ready. Uh, I'm, yeah. I'm already I'll, look, I'll try and look for the cues in your eyes. Andy, the, um, if, you, if it's Got all right. Got it. Oh, I knew. So what it is, is this. I made a decision which if it's true that there are other things going on, like if it's just because it's the first time you've had a cold drink or the first time you've had or the fact that you're just at a nice place like with your mates mm. rather than the stresses of work. What I'll do, first drink of the night, I'll have a soft drink. Big pint of black currant and ice I used to have. I'll drink that and that'll last me the first 15, 20 minutes and then I'll do what I want. I'll just like, that'll the deal I'll make to myself. And when you do that, the first 20 minutes, you go, you're not quite as bothered about that drink as you were 20 minutes ago because hmm. all the real reasons you're drinking have been done anyway. And so then it makes you slightly see it differently. Do you recognise that kind of um, process with your programme, Andy, and how you try to reframe people's attitudes? Yeah, so our frame is very much, it's all about the positives. What are the benefits that you get from taking a break? Have you got more time, more energy? I think Lee touched on this earlier. We, we attribute a lot to the negatives and to the positives, but I think foundationally when you remove alcohol for a while, we know scientifically you're going to sleep better. On average, you, over 28 days, you might lose three kilograms in weight, you reduce liver fat. But I think psychological benefits such as that low-grade tiredness that sort of anxiety that hangs around from days on end disappears and I think in the space that's behind that it's about let's celebrate the wins let's celebrate that more time that clarity maybe you're a little bit less grumpy maybe your relationships are better so a bit like the Alan Carr book did I think for Lee it's putting that different frame around it as to why would you drink it almost doesn't make sense to drink because of the negative consequences and all the incredible benefits you're going to miss out on by not drinking in the first place. It's interesting that you said take a break as well, because take a break is a different phrase to giving up, because giving up, which is used a lot, you know, if you give up drinking, mm. as if you have given something up, as if you've sacrificed something, mm. as opposed to gained anything, you know, that you're giving something up. Which I suppose on paper it looks like you've taken something out of your life, so you must be giving it up. But the list of things you get from it are so much bigger terms of the numbers of things. Mm. You've given up booze, but what you get from that is blah, blah, blah. So you're not giving up so much as... I was with somebody the other day who's not drunk for um, 18 years and he said, he said, I I know now I could actually have, if I wanted, I could have one drink. He had a probably, Mm. you could say, a slightly bigger problem to you. And he said, but why why would I? Because I just feel like I've got so much more in my life. And so his, you know, his maths just was like, why would I do that? I think I'm the same. I think I could, 
probably have a drink now and it wouldn't massively bother me. I wouldn't I don't not drink because I'm trying to battle it. It's not a battle for me. I just think about it differently where it doesn't cross my mind to have a drink. That's the I think if I had to go every day praying that I didn't have a drink, I would probably just drink. Mm. My mind is just changed towards it where I just genuinely don't. So does your programme, Andy, um, help people, like like Lee's just described there, um, those people who, they are not moderate drinkers, they are extreme drinkers. Is that a different thing? That's a different thing altogether. So Dry, the app, really is aimed at this middle lane because if you think about it, that middle lane, which is the moderate drinkers, the average drinkers, like Lee described, is hundreds of millions of adults in the Western world, which has been completely sort of ignored for a long while because the focus has been on addiction, and rightly so. But actually, that middle lane, I think, are the ones that are suffering the most at times. Those couple of drinks making them a little bit tired, a bit inconsistent in maybe the way they exercise, maybe the way that they eat, a bit grumpy, affecting their sleep. I think they've got the biggest gains in many ways to take a break. So that's why the whole methodology and the whole you know movement around dry is to inspire people to take a break and then notice the wins. It's an interesting thing, that middle lane, isn't it? Because certainly the Alan Carr book reframes your whole attitude towards this sort of subject. And it, it's quite contentious, actually, because he put it one way, that alcohol is the only drug, certainly recreational drug, if you count caffeine and nicotine and whatever, where if you take a certain amount of it, it gets a different name and you call it alcoholism. You know, you you drink, but you're not an alcoholic. But if you drink a certain amount or it affects your life a certain way, then you become an alcoholic is, is how society frames it. Mm. So it's very, if you are a middle lane drinker, as it were, then you're never going to think, well, I there's a thing called an alcoholic, which I am not. So therefore, I haven't got a problem. Because if I had a problem, I'd be an alcoholic. Mm. So it's one or the other, isn't it? Mm. But if you smoke five cigarettes a day, you call the smoker, and if you smoke 20 cigarettes a day, you call the smoker, and if you smoke 100 cigarettes a day, you call the smoker, but you're smoking to different degrees. And if you're smoking 100 cigarettes a day, I'm guessing it's a lot worse for your body than if you smoke four cigarettes a day. But you'd still call them both smokers, wouldn't you? Mm. And But we've never been able to do that with alcohol. No. You have to have a name for it. You have to say, right, this is how much you are drinking, or this is how much it's affecting your life. So we're now crossing from drinker to alcoholic. When in fact... It's about, and again, it's, you've got to word this carefully because you don't want to be uh, contentious about people that call themselves alcoholics. Mm. But I do believe, as does this book, that, well, put it one way, having the word alcoholic is very, very handy for the manufacturers of booze, isn't it? Because what alcoholics are, are people that are been told that they have an illness. Mm. If you've got an illness, there is no culpability on the side of the manufacturer, is there? How can they be responsible? If Marlborough's cigarettes had have said, well, it's not our fault you've got lung cancer, you've got the illness, but he he over there, he didn't get lung cancer, so it must be something about you to get lung cancer, so we're washing our hands of every responsibility. People wouldn't, in fact didn't, wouldn't accept that. They'd just go, no, it doesn't work like that. The fact that some people get ill and some don't doesn't mean you're not responsible. And so I think it suits the alcohol companies to perpetuate this idea that there's a thing called an alcoholic because then it means they're not responsible. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the least funny comedy routine <laughs> I've ever done. I'm just here to try out new material for the tour. Um, no, tickets I, available I mean, for we, the we, we've, we've touched on this before. We've chatted about this before. And I think, Andy, that is, you know, it's a very good point, isn't it? It's about responsibility, I think. Absolutely. And there is a societal acceptance with alcohol that perhaps you just, you just wouldn't have with Class A drugs or other things that change people's behaviours. 
I think it's like with cigarettes, isn't it? I mean, look at cigarettes in pubs. We are, even as a non-smoker, I was the kind of liberal that used to say, should we really tell people they can't smoke in pubs? That feels a bit wrong. Now I look back and go, why were people ever allowed to smoke in pubs? And I bet you in 20 years we'll look back and we'll go, how come people were allowed to drink booze in pubs? <laughs> Andy, how's your social life changed and, and the people you hang out? Do you, have you found certain people didn't come along with you on that journey? Because that's what I think a lot of people fear, don't they? Yeah, I think that's the number one fear. And I think that's why having alcohol-free communities is really important, especially online, because it starts out as a solo mission. It's the truth of it, because most of your friends, like in my instance, my wife drinks, all my best friends drink, all my colleagues still drink, most of my family. So when you've had the courage to take a break, it's a, a bit difficult at the start. And I think taking a break is really important. And we use that, and I used it in my industry, because to say I wasn't drinking again was too much. You know, back to Lee's point a minute ago, alcohol is the only drug in the world. When you try and stop it, you get berated for it. You know, your mates twist your arm, your clients give you stick. So for me, having that challenge concept, I, you're going to get your drinking buddy back in 28 days or 90 days, was really beneficial to get me started. But my social life has evolved and changed. I don't sit in the pub for eight hours. I don't find that interesting anymore. Maybe I did once before, but I might go for an hour and a half and have the crack in the banter with the lads. And then I, maybe I go for a run, a bike, a hike. What is also true is that, you know, if you don't drink, there is a suspicion that somehow you are judging people, you know, that you are saying, I don't drink, so therefore what you're doing is wrong. You know? mm. And so people are very cynical and sceptical about that. And again, I, all I ever do is ask the question, what would we be saying about cigarettes? Mm. Because in the 1970s, I mean, I saw a documentary the other day on TV. This is how normalised cigarette advertising was. The Flintstones were advertising cigarettes. A kid's cartoon was... was there, and they were both the characters were smoking, which they didn't do in the cartoon, obviously. And that was completely acceptable, yeah. right? Now, that was in the 50s. Not the 1850s, the 1950s, which actually, in the bigger picture, it's not that long ago. And even in the 70s, mm. Formula One, Marlboro's mm. all over them. The Embassy World Snooker Championship was in the 80s. And, and you look at the history of advertising and, and the way that the cigarettes were pushed upon people, and then someone suddenly said, this is a really bad idea, mm. and everyone thought, freedom of speech, this isn't fair, we should be able to do it. And now we all agree. It was mad, right? It was crazy to associate sports with fags. <laughs> Surely. <laughs> so now we do it with booze, and it's perfectly acceptable. But we'll look back in the future and just go, how was that allowed? What, what were we doing? That was mad. And if you said to someone... I've decided to give up smoking. Firstly, no one would go, oh, come on, just have a couple. They'd all be supporting you. <laughs> and secondly, what they wouldn't say is, you don't smoke 40 a day anymore. So what do you do? They go, well, you know all those things I did? I do that, but without smoking. It's exactly the same. But I just don't cough as much now. How how successful is your programme in terms of... Because I know I, I did a little kind of dive into the app and everything yesterday. In terms of people who kind of stick to it, what are you finding your success rate is? It's huge because I think most people have already made that proactive move to reflect upon their relationship with alcohol to come and download mm. the app. You know, it's free, so there's no barrier to entry. And once they're in there, I think they surround themselves with people going through the same thing at the same time, cheering each other on, supporting each other. We have challenges. And I think that just creates this beautiful space. It's a really beautiful space to be in where people from all over the globe are coming together just to do something a bit different. And, and as I said, most of them start as a lone ranger because their people around them are still drinking. But back to Lee's point as well, I think I get asked a lot of the time, what can I do? I've got a loved one, I've got a sibling that's maybe drinking too much. And my answer's always the same. Show them, you know, be the change that you 
want to see, as Gandhi once said, i.e. take a break yourself mm. and maybe live that life for a period of more time, more energy, more well, vitality. It goes back to the thing, doesn't it? We have a word called alcoholism. And so what happens is they go, yeah, but my loved ones, my family, they've got a problem. I don't have a problem. They have a problem. It's not me that needs to be dealt with. But again, it's this dodgy mm. area of going, mm. the them and us, two different words for the same thing. Different, different, different amounts consumed is probably what I'm trying to say. Andy, thank you so much. The the app is dry with two Ys. Two eyes, I think. Two eyes. I think he's saying eyes. <laughs> two eyes. It sounds very similar, doesn't yeah. it? The, why the letter for why, yellow? Why for yabba dabba do? Yes. yes, it is. It is. Yes, oh, on the Flintstone yes. I thought it was motive. Two, like two eyes. No, two eyes. Oh, Perfect. I thought it was just. I thought it meant if you are dry, then you'll be able to use both your eyes. Uh, oh right, I thought if you were dry, you'd be so wise. Or you dry? <laughs> no, you'll dry. Oh, you'll no. if you're dry, all your friends will go. Why? <laughs> <laughs> what do you do? That's probably more like Thank it. you so much, Andy. Keep doing what you're doing. Um, and I think it's such an interesting space. So we're really, uh, really glad you came. As you can see, Lee's not passionate about it at all. No. So. I'm <laughs> it's marvellous. And Lee, keep showing up and shining that message because this is a fresh message I think that people yeah. need to hear that it's not about problematic. No. Like, why bother? Thank you. Thank you. Lee, we, um, we haven't got a lot more time left, but I want to talk to what, you a little bit about... What, you mean because about, it's the midlife? Um, or do you mean on the no, podcast? Yes, we're close to the end and the beginning. Oh. Uh, I want to talk to you a little bit about your health and fitness regime. <laughs> and uh, Regime? Yeah, what is Lee Mack doing well, to... What I've fit? done for the last five or six years is I've taken part in Soccer Aid on ITV. Which, I mean, anybody who's listened to this who's seen you on Soccer Aid knows you haven't just taken part, Lee. You have been... One of the the game changers of I've soccer. seen, but I've seen what it's like to be a professional footballer. The highs and the lows. Well, we 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 remember the highs. Well, I remember the lows. <laughs> I used to always say that I used to play a game when I was a, a circuit comic, and that game was how low would you go? And what that means is how low would you have gone as a professional footballer <laughs> to not be a comedian? And I used to always say Doncaster Rovers. Right? I, used to right. go, I would have played for Doncaster Rovers for say ten years and in exchange for not being a comedian, had I been good enough. Right, right? Okay. And now I've sampled it and been involved in the world. I've become very good friends with Graham Lasseau. I've got to know professional footballers and heard about, like any job, it's not just all no. lifting up the FA Cup, is it? No. No. A lot. So now, Especially with Graham Lasseau. So is your standard. It's, it's, it's about the, the pros and the cons. Yeah. And, and now, if I played that game, Barcelona. Really? Yeah, I'd have to be one it's of the totally top clubs. I'm not giving your, up comedy for anything less it's than Barcelona. Changed your perspective. Yeah, because it's it's hard it's hard, hard work, yeah. and there's there's some real disappointment. You know, you know, as you know, Graham went through loads of nonsense and rubbish in his career, and he he he's made me see that. And also, just doing soccer aid is mm. it's it's brutally hard training. Mm. You know, especially when you're a 55 year old unfit man, but. So but yeah, are you I'd, saying you just get in shape for soccer? Age well, yeah, and that's exactly <laughs> what I was saying. I, every year, I'd go right. It's coming up in a few months, and the only way I can enjoy this is if I'm a bit fitter. And I should point out, as the oldest person who does it most years, I go from being the unfittest to still the unfittest, but but just uh, just about not vomiting on the pitch. I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of how the, the worst thing that happened to me probably ever shows you my levels of fitness. I. They give you these little chest straps mm -hmm. that you put on. So it measures your heart rate, your distance covered, all these stats. And then they put them up in the changing room. I don't even think it's part of the show. It's just to humiliate <laughs> you. And so we did this thing. And I was the lowest, second lowest in every category, whether it's speed, heart rate, blah, blah, blah distance covered. And 
But in every category, I beat one person, the same person, and it was Darius Vassell. Now, obviously, you know who he is, but people listening might not remember. He was professional footballer, played for England, played for Villa, I think, didn't they? Yeah. He was a top, top player and still a lot younger than I am now. And I beat him in every category, but only just, only just. So I, I, instead of just leaving it at that, I bragged. And I went up to Darius and went, so... Uh, I know I was second to bottom, but I beat you in every category. And Darius said, yeah, I'm sorry to disappoint you, Lee, but the day they did that, I wasn't here. <laughs> and then I said, well, how come you registered something just slightly below me? And we worked it out that he'd left this strap in a bag and someone had carried it from the coach to the changing room. And in that short journey, that did more than almost as much as I did in two hours of training. But, but I'm trying to think of a positive that you're at the bottom. I'm trying now to kind of work out why why you keep going back. Well, because I'll tell you why. Because three years on the run, I did it, and every year they made they made me. I pushed myself forward. Penalty shootout. I took the penalty because I wanted my one glory moment. And I've realised there's no way I'm getting that in real time. It has to be a penalty shootout. So the celebs take them, and you're not allowed to if you're an ex-pro. Three years on the run, I missed right, and it was to live that fantasy for a split second, sell out crowd, score a goal. And it was heartbreaking for me, genuinely heartbreaking. And then the following year, I changed teams, played for the rest of the world and scored in, in open play. And then the following year, I scored the winning penalty. So you've, and had, you've had the I can't let go now. of that feeling. No, though. you want that back. I want it You're back. You're chasing that back. And already I realise I'm chasing. Last year, I didn't hardly touch the ball. And what about um, your veganism? Is that Do you think that kind of uh, helps keep your diet pretty... Good I think balanced. if Don't anyone's seen me in Soccer Aid, they'd say I'm a really bad advert for veganism. <laughs> I'm not the fastest. I'm not the lightest. But no, I, I've I've got evidence of how veganism has helped because I every year I'd go back on the treadmill for Soccer Aid and that starting again is horrible. And the one full year I did a proper vegan year, it was noticeably different. I really did notice that I was... It's like I'd never been away. And when I say never been away, I was able to run one kilometre without vomiting. <laughs> but still. Is your wife a vegan as well? She's not. She's. I'm. I'm a vegan. She's. I would call her vegan light, like I was for a few years. So veganish, right. meaning predominantly vegan, with a bit of vegetarianism. She she makes brilliant cakes, and she can't bring herself to use the vegan butter. And I'm going. Come on. So you don't eat those cakes then? I don't. Not anymore. But yeah. I did. I was like that was my last. You're thing a disciplined that... man, aren't you? Yeah, but it's it's. Uh, you I... could have been a sportsman. I think listening to you know the way you've. <laughs> kind of adopted your lifestyle with alcohol, your veganism, you know, you have that self I'm not going to lie, as someone who works as a pundit like you, I would have much preferred, you could have been a sportsman, because I've seen you play. That would have been <laughs> brilliant. Lovely way to end this. But no, just because of my eating habits. But no, actually, we we both watch What the Health. Have you seen that? Yes. I mean, yeah, I just don't know how you can watch that and no, not be a vegan no, if I'm going to no. be... Are you a vegan? Uh, no, I'm not and a vegan. And you got to the end. No, yeah. Well, what are, we, what are we watching differently there, Gabby? Well, what I've kind of focused on is provenance of food is one thing that I, you know, so I'm absolutely against kind of mass... Locally um, sourced. Locally sourced and trying, yeah. to, trying to make sure that... that yeah, I'm, I'm a, I'm, I've, I've got into this habit of shoplifting recently, but I'll only steal from shops that are near my house. So I know what you mean. <laughs> you, you can't end the podcast <laughs> like that. You know, if you, I just think, I just, for me, I say to people, watch, watch, Chris Evans told me to watch it. That's a showbiz name dropper. Is, but is Chris is. is Chris a vegan? Well, I don't think he is. I think no. he's, his wife is, and I think he's quite veganish. I think. But I watched that program. My attitude is: uh, you you watch it and don't get to the end, or you get to the end and you become a vegan. I don't know how you get to the end and not go. 
you know what I mean? Well, we probably haven't got time well, to, to discuss it right now. Well, I have. But but it's it's probably more about how you get all the nutrients that you need in your diet, I think, because a lot of vegans don't. Mm. And, you you know, there's a lot right. of... Um, I think We're you need to... That, I think uh, I think... No, no, it's just quite hard to get the amount of protein right. into your diet that you need. Okay. Yes, apart from the fact that, no, it isn't. <laughs> Okay. No, that's my argument. No, no, it isn't. But but it's true that everyone says that. Yeah. No. But but, but no, it isn't. I, there's a doctor on that documentary that I believe fully. He said, if there was such a thing as a lack of protein in your diet, why in the years that I've been doing this job, and have I never met one human being who's lacking in protein? Protein is in loads of things. I, I understand that, but mm. I, I suppose I've got at the time a teenage son who was building his body to be a rugby player and yeah. wouldn't um, kind of entertain eating the kinds of foods that because I was, he believes that you know meat, meat is that's where protein. But of course, so, where's, where's the cow getting it from? True. From the grass. You yeah. don't see many cows eating burgers, do you? <laughs> Where are they getting all their... Pro- their body's full of protein, a cow. Where's he getting it from? The, the plants. Maybe I need to watch what the health Cut out the middle, man. Just eat the grass. Get on all fours. Tell your son to get on all fours and eat the grass. Now, you see, with, with drinking, you're quite moderate. But with, with veganism, you, mm. you're quite... Um, it's no-brainer. Yeah. Absolutely no-brainer. Look, look at my body. Gabby, it comes at a price, this body. <laughs> You've got to sacrifice to get this. Do you try and convert people? All the time. I'm a proper bore. <laughs> I, I, I will con- try and convert people more about the veganists than the two things, particularly the drink. If you think about how much drink has affected my life growing up in that family environment, yeah, yeah. And, you, know, you think I'd be going on about the, the booze. Is that for the planet? It's just I just find that being a non-drinker isn't quite sanctimonious enough. So I just add on the Buddhism, <laughs> the meditation, and the veganism, and then I think really people really dislike me. Then people are going, he's having a fun midlife. Well, I <laughs> my theory is this: I've told you we started this by saying I nothing beats lying on the sofa watching match of the day. What better way to achieve that to get the nation to hate me? Because no one will want to see me and they've got all that time off. <laughs> so if I see banging on about stuff I don't really believe in, eventually they'll go, I'm not watching him anymore. He keeps ending the shows. He used to end in a song. Now he ends in a rant about veganism. <laughs> Do you, should we end in another way? Very yeah, quickly. go on then. So uh, not going out, yes. uh, your very successful sitcom. I think you've reached 100 episodes. We're about to. It depends on when this goes out, but if this goes you've out... You've written 100 episodes, though. We've filmed them. Yeah, the only yeah. one that's not been... Bro- we've broadcast 99 episodes, and the 100th one is this Christmas. But on our podcast work, you could be listening to this in 2072. <laughs> so it goes out Christmas 2023. Uh, and that will be the hundredth episode. Will it be the final episode? Is that what you're going to ask? Yeah. I don't know. We are still having discussions. I have said I will only do another three series if everyone <laughs> on the crew stops drinking and becomes a vegan and meditates twice a day. Like Morrissey. You know, if you go see Morrissey on tour, you can't they can't have any burger vans in the arena stuff like that yeah proper pain well, like Coldplay pain in the concert you've got to go and uh, go on a bit exercise bike at the back to power the stadium you don't well they have them I'm not sure it actually does power the that's stadium that's proper yeah. that, I mean yeah. yeah that's they wanted to do a that's proper showbiz sport. wanker isn't it yeah. <laughs> but makes sense saves a lot of money doesn't it and also on the they're, sending, they're sending a message and you're sending a message you know, yeah, can't afford the electric bills. So um, how, how far are your principles stretched? You know, say somebody wanted you to do another series of your What the Buddha. Um, what was it? What, can't believe it's what not Buddha. Buddha. Can't uh, believe it's, it's not Buddha. Buddha. Bu- I like What the Buddha. What the Buddha. With a podcast. Um, yeah. say, say Dairy Lee wanted to sponsor that. 100% not. We felt we, when we did it, we were allowed to tick the adverts that weren't allowed on. Right. Now, did we tick no milk or cheese adverts? I actually can't remember because we weren't, I personally wasn't quite as fundamentalist vegan I feel I am now but 
Although, weirdly, there was a, we were listening back and there was an advert for Labrooks in the middle of it, which I thought, that's not very Buddhist, is it? But we definitely ticked the no gambling. That was a yeah. mistake. But you won't, do, you won't take 100%. corporates for people not, you don't believe in? or no, 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 there's no need, is there? But you weren't that principled man at 20, were you? So this is a midlife I guess so. As you get older, you start... Yeah, you start... Looking in the mirror and taking responsibility. You, you know what you start thinking, Gabby, when you get to 55? What am I leaving behind? I don't mean when I get off this chair, don't worry. I mean... That's why I left the plastic covers on. <laughs> no, but what are you leaving behind? You know, where do you go? Mm. What, have you, what have you done? Mm. What have you done? And I just can't help thinking, if I knock on the pearly gates and go, well, I made a few people laugh, he might go, yeah, you need to be more than that, mate. Is that it? I could have done that. Well, he couldn't, could he? He's not, he's got a stand-up set. But you know what I mean? You've got to give something back for when you leave, haven't you? Yeah. What are you giving back, Gabby? The, well, apparently I'm filling all your spare time. You are. You are. <laughs> on the, you don't always do much today, do you? I already had this... No, I don't do much ah. today very often at all. I had this, you do a lot of athletics now, this, yeah? yeah, and rugby. Yeah, I'm not interested and... in either of those. That's the problem. <laughs> You're doing the sports I've no interest in. Kenny, I'm not sure if Kenny will be listening to this, but I've no interest in rugby, you see. No. I, when I came round, I wasn't interested in meeting Kenny, the rugby player. Until you mentioned I was interested in his in his digger yeah. and the tools he has I've realised he's not a rugby player he's, he's a gardener yeah, isn't he, he that's what he really is that's what I find fascinating yeah. wow you, yeah, he, you. Would, he doesn't want to talk to you about rugby either I so. don't want to talk about his strimmer <laughs> Lee Mack it has been an absolute joy Thank it's you been. For it's me. also been at times uh, quite chastening and yes, uh, I feel I have told you off a little bit and I'm sorry that's about good. that no it's I'm good sorry. it's good to I mean I'm going to call off the bacon sandwiches we were making for you downstairs I'm yeah. joking we weren't obviously no but sorry we didn't have any alternative you, milk but, when you arrived but we yes well you you did did we I think I did have a black coffee in the end you did have a black coffee in the end black coffee. that's yeah. fine that was nice I wouldn't you know as he's Scottish He's, is he, he's, he's a Scottish rugby he player. A, a Scottish rugby player used to be a farmer. The chances of him having non dairy <laughs> is lessened in that situation. Bit harsh on the Scottish, though, because I think the Scottish are quite, quite vegan, friendly. vegan friendly. But, yeah. but certainly you not. Knew his background. The, the rugby farmer bit got yeah, me a bit, you know. Exactly. Is, he, is he from a dairy farming background? It was. <gasps> but they sold it. They sold the dairy bit. So, Did they? Yeah. So okay. it's no longer. No longer there. But if you speak to Kenny about his love of cows, yeah. honestly, he loves cows almost as much as he loves cows. Oh, well. um, um, gardening. That's actually so, quite sweet. And what, yeah. what better way to show you love than string them up and slit the throat? And on that bombshell, let's say goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs> <laughs>certainly a lot of food for thought there and time flies with Lee it was great to see him again I could chat to him all day in fact we did end up chatting all day after the recording finished uh, thank you to Andy Ramage too be sure to visit his website if you're interested in changing your habits in any area of your life and thank you to Spiritland Productions for putting this episode together and to you for joining me take care I'll catch you next time up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? 
Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.